If you're a small business owner looking to grow or expand your business, check out OnDeck Business Loans. OnDeck offers business loans online from $5,000 to $500,000, and their simple application process only takes 10 minutes. Unlike banks, they'll give you a decision quickly, and funding is as fast as one day. Get a free consultation with an OnDeck loan advisor. Visit OnDeck.com podcast. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator. If you are a marketing executive who wants to deliver bottom line impact by identifying and connecting with revenue generating customers, then this is the show for you. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe, CEO of Ambition Data. Each week, I bring you the leaders behind the customer-centric revolution who share their expert advice. Are you ready to accelerate? Then let's go. Welcome everyone. Today's show is about activating CLV marketing and to help me discuss this topic is Phil Irvine. Phil is the director of CRM at The Books, which you might have guessed from the name is an online floral retailer. Phil, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Allison. Uh, excited to talk about what we have going on at the Books and just this topic in general. It's a very fascinating uh, subject, in my opinion. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we we love data. We love getting power out of it, and we certainly love this topic. Well, could you start by telling us a little bit more about the Books, especially for people like myself who were perhaps previously not familiar with the brand? Yeah, definitely. So the Books, as you mentioned, is an online floral retailer, but what's kind of interesting about how we try to position ourselves, we try to position ourselves as a means to commemorate key meaningful life uh, memories and experiences. So, you know, the the core of of our portfolio is flowers. Um, We recently launched plants, but what we really try to do is position ourselves as a unique provider of gifts in the floral and plant space. But as a means to really highlight and and commemorate life's meaningful um, experiences and whatnot. And I, you know, what's interesting about the books is, you know, originally the way that that we positioned ourselves was, uh, you know, 100% of our flowers originally came from South America and Ecuador. And we had this whole story about flowers being grown uh, in close proximity to a volcano. And that just really helped with um, helping us go viral in, in the fact that there was a perception that the flowers were higher quality. And so, you know, part of our story is that we try to position ourselves as higher quality, more curated products to somewhat justify a higher price point. But at the same time, we try to complement that with a more seamless shopping experience. And so you may have seen with some of the big players like 1-800-Flowers, Pro Flowers, there's a lot of upsells and, you know, opportunities to buy candies or other types of gifts outside of flowers. The cheesy teddy bear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, you know, part of our original goal was to really, you know, really connect with the consumer that just wants to, you know, go to a place where they can find beautiful flowers, beautiful collections, and have the ability to check out and make a purchase and also know what they're paying for upfront 
we now charge for delivery, but originally, you know, we didn't even charge for delivery. We just kind of surfaced the flat rate price. And so that's a big thing we try to strive for is transparency with how we communicate with our customers. You know, it's amazing how much that's becoming a, a way that people are building their businesses is by simply being transparent about how interactions happen. And I think consumers really like that. And I can see where your brand might have a different feel and a different flavor from the, the big, you know, one hundred flowers guns which basically seems like it's a um like it's kind of the same it's the same corporate mentality versus a real personality in the books brand exactly the floral industry it's somewhere in the range of 14 to 18 billion dollars and uh, you know a lot of the big players in this space the competitive advantage that they have is they have these huge supply chain and distribution systems in place where they can churn out and deliver vast quantities of flowers in short periods of time. You know, one big thing that's interesting about the market is 80 to 85% of customers buy flowers for same day purposes or next day occasions. And is that right? That Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually really interesting. You know, I, I think a lot of people are like myself. I forget things like my wife's birthday or my mother's birthday and whatnot. And I have to you know, buy something last minute. And so I, I definitely fall into that demo. And, um, you know, the Books is a smaller player and we're trying to catch up on, and from that perspective. But the way we really try to differentiate ourselves is, you know, creating unique experiences across our sites, through our communications, through the way that we handle customer contacts to our call center. And so it's a way that we, that we definitely try to differentiate ourselves. I can absolutely see that on the site with the whole campfire bouquet. I thought that was very clever. But you were also talking about people and the way that you manage call centers and such, and, and that seems to get more into your role. So could you tell us a little bit about your role as a director of CRM and what that actually means in your everyday work? Yeah, definitely. So um, as you mentioned, I'm the director of CRM here at the Books, and you know, kind of what that entails here is oversight over all outbound marketing touch points with customers and registered users that we have within our database. So the majority of communication is via email marketing, but we also do a lot with a mobile app that we have to communicate with customers. And then during kind of our peak season times, which are Valentine's Day and Mother's Day, we do some direct mail promotions, uh, paid social via Facebook and Instagram. And so uh, my responsibility is trying to identify the most meaningful messages, promotions, and offers for our various customers, um, looking at what life cycle stage that they're at, and then also looking at, you know, how valuable of a customer they are versus, you know, ones that maybe aren't as valuable. But then just lately, the role has also evolved into figuring out, trying to figure out how to use data and insights that we have about customers to influence strategies with other functional areas within the company. So a big use case we're really diving into now is how to use some of this customer data that we have about you know, how valuable they are and, and especially where they are in their lifecycle stage to inform um, our customer experience team that's responsible for handling call center contacts via phone, chat, and tickets as well. 
So let's build on that for a second because I think you've hit on the heart of the topic, which is the CLV marketing strategy. And I heard you say life cycle stage a couple times. Could you give us like a, a before and after? Like if I were at a company that wasn't thinking about life cycle stage or wasn't using lifetime value, what would the marketing strategy have been or be today if, it, if they were lagging? And what is it that the Books is doing that's different? Yeah, definitely. And um, it's interesting you bring that up. If you just kind of focus on email marketing and our company across all channels, the way we measure attribution is on a last click basis. Um, You know, not the optimal way, but we look at when orders are placed, what was the last channel that a customer engaged with before they made an order? So when we looked at that, when I first got here, the way that we separate out our types of campaigns in a real simplistic way is, you know, mass promotions, which are the typical kind of mass blast emails that you have to your entire customer base versus mm-hmm. broadcast. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, things like newsletters. Every month we have like a book of the month promotion where we highlight a new flower and we offer a 10% discount. So things of, of that nature. On the other end of the spectrum, we look at revenue from triggered and lifecycle type campaigns. So when I first got here, all we really had in place were, um, you know, kind of typical for e-commerce companies, order confirmation emails, shipping confirmation, order delivered type of campaigns. We had an abandoned cart email series, but outside of that, we really didn't have any triggered or event-based types of campaigns. And I think the mix was 70% promotional versus 30% on the triggered basis as far as the revenue distribution. And as I've kind of come in here and worked with the team and leveraged a lot of uh, new tools that we have in place, we've been able to adjust that mix to be more 50-50 and Just conceptually, the optimal state that an organization wants to get to is sending a communication to a customer that's most relevant and most timely, where it's going to make sense to the customer to engage with a brand versus previously, we were kind of just sending mass blast promotions to everybody where our most engaged customers, they were extremely interested, but, you know, for some that just maybe weren't in market to gift at the time, um, you know, wasn't relevant for them. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm curious, I mean, you mentioned 70-30 promotional triggered, now more 50-50. Is optimal 90-10 or is optimal some other mix? In other words, how much of that broadcast do you keep in play? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I I would imagine it probably varies by organization. It's interesting. I used to support the email marketing program for Delta Airlines. And with Delta Airlines, they would have weekly fare sales, um, which were kind of weekly promotions. And then they would have a monthly statement to kind of update you on your loyalty points status. But you know, outside of that, their primary focus was on triggered and transactional types of campaigns. So, you know, in that scenario, the mix they were shooting for is maybe like 20% promotional, 80% triggered. With us, you know, we're at about 50-50 right now. I, you know, I personally would like to see us to get to maybe 30-70, so kind of a, a flip of where we were when I first got here. The thing in our business, in our industry, is a big thing is using new seasonal collections as hooks to get customers to, to stay engaged and to purchase. So. 
when you have new seasons each year and new collections, you're naturally going to have just new content that you have to surface to your customers. So that's going to fuel a continuation of broadcast type messaging. But there's also opportunities to inject that new content into triggered campaigns as well. And when you say new seasonal collections, I mean, this reminds me a little bit about how fast retailers operate, is that you're not just sitting back and waiting for Christmas and Valentine's Day and maybe Mother's Day. I'm not sure what the top holidays are. But you're essentially creating shorter seasons or shorter event timelines, in which case I would want to buy a flower for this time or, or it would be relevant to send a, send a bouquet at this time. Is that right? Could you talk more about that? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So the top seasons, Mother's Day is number one, Valentine's Day is number two. Across the industry, those two holidays make up about 50 to 60% of yearly revenue, which is kind of interesting. But then, yeah, to your question, outside of that, what you'll see is retailers will spin up spring collections, summer collections, fall collections, and then once you get into November and December, they'll have a potentially a Thanksgiving collection, but definitely a holiday collection. And within each of those, you know, I'll call them kind of micro seasons. Um, you definitely see they can lead to awareness and engagement, not nearly the same levels as Valentine's Day and Mother's Day, but we try to align our collections and the names of the flowers themselves to align with the seasons. So for July 4th, I think we had an Independence Day themed book that we had available, just to give you an example. So that's something that our merchandising team is, is really strong at with trying to be creative with the ways that they surface these new collections to align with uh, the seasons for our customer base. You know what I want? I want a back to school collection that has pencils in it so I don't have to buy those for my kids. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that back to the merch team for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into the, the data a little bit. When I'm thinking about this, the seasonal collections, it, it sounds like there's a frequency game going on and I get a customer in and then if we're looking at lifetime value, the goal is oftentimes to get not just an intelligent conversation going on between the customer and, and my brand, but to encourage the repetitive engagement, the repetitive frequency. Um, this seems to be a lot of what the collections are going for, but I imagine it's a lot more than just looking at the collection and saying, you know, black out an email. Talk to us a little bit about how your role maybe emphasizes the trigger or the life cycle or, or another angle more than just saying, hey, we have a holiday collection, come back again. Yeah, great question. So the real big low-hanging fruit in this industry outside of the Valentine's Day and Mother's Day is the concept of marketing toward annuity type occasions. So say you got married in mid-June, a big thing we try to do is if we recognize that you bought flowers for your significant other in mid-June, we'll market towards that date the following year to try to get you to buy either the same collection for your significant other or another bouquet within our portfolio. So outside of the peak seasons, that's a huge part of what we try to lean into. And big thing with us and with, I'm sure with competitors too, is the concept of data collection, of trying to get these key dates so that you can market towards these these key moments to your customers. Sorry, you said date collection, not data collection, which I naturally hear. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess both are kind of related, but like actual dates. So weddings, birthdays, 
you know, really wedding dates and birthday dates are the two biggest occasions that we put in efforts to collect and market towards, uh, towards our customers for the following years. And then to your point about looking at customer lifetime value, I think, you know, the, the way that I like to think about it is, you know, a big thing with, you know, a lot of companies and especially startups is you're constantly looking at the uh, customer acquisition cost to lifetime value ratio. You obviously want to spend a lot less to acquire a new customer than the ongoing value that they're going to provide to your organization. But I think where the things haven't really been ironed out is looking at on a continual basis. I think a lot of companies look at that upfront with acquiring a customer, but then as far as continuing to engage with the customer, a lot of organizations just say, okay, now that we acquired a customer, let's just rely on email marketing because it's kind of a sunk cost to re-engage customers. Um, you know, you pay a license fee up front and there's not really an incremental charge to send email. But I think the way that I like to think about it and, and our organization is starting to think about it is if we know certain customers are providing higher lifetime value and are more engaged and providing more value to the organization, that should justify additional paid media costs to get them to make that second, third or fourth purchase or even sign up for our subscription product. So I think that's the way that we're really starting to think about it is if they're maybe not engaged with email, potentially that can justify activities with trying to target them with Facebook ads, Instagram, direct mail. And we're even looking into display ad marketing as well um, as, a, as a channel to drive engagement and purchases as well. That's fantastic. I mean, in a sense, you're building that relationship a lot more deeply because you're not just re-engaging them with here's another product, but you're also saying, how can we be more of service to you by having a subscription? So instead of having to come back every month, we could find a way to put the right flowers on the table for you at the right time on the dates that you want. Yeah, so called the scheduler, um, shameless plug for for the product, but um, it's definitely great for people like myself. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I, I'm very forgetful of key moments and key dates. And so it's basically a product that allows you to pre-schedule flowers to be sent to uh, recipients of your choice on specific dates. So it's a minimum of three deliveries as a commitment. And then with that, we surface a continual discount and also free shipping for the products. And so that's another thing that we're working with a, a great partner of ours, Castora, right now of looking at customers that are showing behaviors of being higher value and, and higher value in terms of predicted value. But then we're also working with them. They, I mean, they've been great. They developed a model to predict which customers are more likely to sign up for our subscription products. And so that's a big thing we're exploring right now as well is, you know, outside of these key holidays where we're kind of mass marketing to our customers to buy for Mother's Day and Valentine's Day, it's, you know, what are the cohorts or customers where it makes sense to be more aggressive with driving them to sign up for our scheduler products or our regular delivery subscription product. That, that's perfect. And what I'm also hearing here is that you're looking at individuals and it's a lower volume of individuals that you can then move into your paid media strategies. So it's not like you're saying, here's people who viewed a page and I'm going to spread paid media all over them because they viewed a page. It, it sounds like this is much more precise. 
Correct. So we definitely have some straightforward retargeting that is in play. We have limited budget towards that. But yeah, kind of what I'm getting at here conceptually is having a bigger focus on the customers that have either showed or have the potential to show more value in terms of dollars, referrals, potential to sign up for subscriptions, and specifically going after that cohort of customers with paid media channels. There, it's going to justify the CAC to LTV ratio that makes sense to, to, to scale properly. That's right. That, that makes perfect sense. And, and I love that approach because I think it's fairly unique. Just like you said before, people tend to stop at CAC only, which is customer acquisition cost, and they don't really look at the long-term value. Um, so it sounds like you're definitely doing that. What are areas where you want to do more or you think you could get more out of CLV? You know, we're still at the early stages of having this in market on, you know, kind of an automated basis. We're still in a mode where we're, we're doing one-off tests to, to continue to justify this. I think there's a big area of opportunity is when you think of kind of optimal digital experiences, you know, with customers these days, and especially millennials, video content is crucial to capture the attention of the average customer. And I think a big opportunity for us is trying to align video experiences that tie into how we want to differentiate ourselves of capturing life's meaningful moments. And I think in the future for us, it's how can we surface compelling video content that'll further engage our customer base to stay loyal um, to the books versus other competitors in the space. Um, you know, we have some video content that's out in the market on our website. We do some engagement type social through Instagram and Facebook, but it's it's not really targeted to specific customers. And I think that's a huge opportunity for us, like based off of customer preferences or if we know recipients that they like to buy for. Um, you know, an, an idea we've thrown out there is aligning video content about gifting to mothers, say, for instance, to people that we know have bought for their moms in the past. So I think I think that's really where we're trying to go in, in the future here. I think that makes a lot of sense. And can you talk about the results or the maybe the percentage rates you've seen differently between the trigger-based programs and what you would have seen before? That was something I, I neglected to mention earlier, but I imagine there's probably a big difference in open rates or conversion rates or whatever your key metric is. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I don't have all of the specific stats offhand, but if you look at orders as a percentage of total email deliveries for promotional versus transactional or triggered, it's at least 10x greater on the triggered and transactional side than the promotional side. So, you know, a function of that is you're going after smaller, more targeted audiences. So that's definitely a factor. But I, I think the concept of those types of communications being more timely and relevant definitely adds into that relative uh, increase in uh, results there. Yep. And I can see how that feeds into the video content idea. I just saw something that um, came through from another channel that sort of knocked my socks off. And this was a, a company that specialized in video. So maybe they were natural at it. But what they did is they noticed that I watched a video of theirs, which was a salesy video, and then I didn't convert. And then they sent me via email, because I'm in their system, an actual video that they said they created just for me. Now, <laughs> whether they created it on the 
fly or whether they had some package thing, it caught me, uh, it made me step back a little bit because all of a sudden there was this almost one-to-one personal communication with video and a person who wanted to talk to me. And wow, that was an amazing connection. And it seems like that might be something that um, that you could lean into as well with, with, with the books, with flowers. Yeah, you know, YouTube does a great job with that. I'll notice if I happen to find myself watch like a, I don't know, an SNL skit. You know, the next time I go back to YouTube, it's funny, I'll go there for a purpose to maybe look up if I'm maybe researching a vendor or want to catch an episode of a show that I missed. I'll find myself just spending four times the amount of time on the YouTube site because they're recommending such personalized targeted videos that they think that I would like. And it's, they have a really good algorithm, obviously. And it definitely distracts me from what my original purpose was of going to uh, (laughs) YouTube in the first place. (laughs) We've all been there. Absolutely. Now I want to mention that uh, there was an offer code that you put out at the Karma, the Castora Karma conference. And if it's okay, I'll mention this offer code again, and maybe some of our listeners can take advantage of it. Oh, yes, definitely. Feel free to mention it. It's good until the end of the year in 2018. And yeah. Okay. The code is called KARMA15. So it gives you a 15% discount on uh, a bouquet that you might buy from the books. And it's spelled KARMA with a C, C C-A-R-M-A. Do you need a space between that and the 15? No, it should all just be one word uh, connected there. Okay, so Karma, C-A-R-M-A, and then the digits 1-5 will get you 15% off your first bouquet at the Books. Thank you so much, Phil, for that um, offer code that we can extend to folks on the who are listening today. I, I do want to also touch on some of your previous background because, you know, CRM has really come a long way, or I, I like to think that it's not, you know, our grandfather's CRM that was doing some basic blocking and tackling. And I saw in your profile that you had done some work at Beachbody before, which was using the Salesforce system. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about other ways companies have used or taken advantage of CRM systems to do better marketing? Yeah. So Beachbody, for those that don't know, they're really more known for their individual brands. So P90X was a Tony Horton series of fitness programs, um, Insanity was a big uh, hit with uh, Sean T was the uh, personal trainer. And so at Beachbody, we were operating on the Salesforce marketing cloud. And so the big challenge there from a CRM perspective was uh, Beachbody was great three, four years ago with uh, creating awareness and demand. Their founders were, you know, really masters at the concept of how to use long form infomercials to drive customers to buy fitness DVDs and fitness programs. And so The big challenge with us was anecdotally what we would hear is that people a lot of times would be inspired. They may have felt out of shape. They were maybe partying the night before and felt like they needed to get back into a fitness regimen to get back on a program. And they were inspired in the moment, but then we heard anecdotally like 60% of people never even opened the packages when they they arrived at their house. So the challenge number one was um, it was hard to collect data to understand, you know, who was using the products and who wasn't. And our group was tasked with trying to get them to repeat buy. 
So we, we tried to use Salesforce Marketing Cloud. We would try to surface um, surveys and mechanisms to try to collect data to get customer feedback. And optimally, what we were trying to get at was understanding, based off of their past purchase history and their user preferences, trying to align ongoing promotions through email, Facebook, direct mail that would get them to repeat purchase and repeat buy in the future. So Salesforce Marketing Cloud was the platform that we used to try to accomplish that. And what we were getting into right before I left was using their journey builder feature to align um, automated uh, nurture series to get the customer base to repeat buy. Um, So conceptually, it was if we saw somebody coming to the site and we had tracking in place to see like what video or site content that they viewed aligning uh, nurture series to try to get them to convert and buy. And that space, it was interesting that the content that resonated the most was um, before and afters. So images of people that were out of shape. And then once they got on the program, you know, they lost 20, 30, 40 pounds. And so showing those types of images and testimonials and then Really, the video content from the trainers themselves, we had the fortune of having a lot of brand equity with our trainers. So we tried to surface that and lead with that from a content perspective to get customers to buy as well. So it was definitely an interesting challenge, but um, it's a space that I love and it was, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. You know, I'm going to ask you to compare the two tools for a second, because it seems like if we rewind back to pre-Castora days, you know, what what you've laid out is a good practice for using the tools that are there. But most people don't really know that there are other tools that are a little sharper. So what would you say is the difference in precision between using Castora and using Salesforce Marketing Cloud? Yeah, you know, this is an interesting topic that is definitely being discussed across a lot of uh, different types of organizations. So at Beachbody, we were a much larger organization, and we actually had a dedicated marketing analytics team that aligned with CRM and retention marketing. So with Salesforce, it's, it's a great marketing automation tool. You can put in market multi-channel experiences where, you know, you can automate sending certain customers email versus other Facebook ads. You can send some text messages, you know, at least from, from my knowledge on the analytics side and getting into the concepts of predicting what types of content that customers would want to see, it, it doesn't really have that natively built in to the platform. So at Beachbody, we had to lean on our marketing analytics team to put together these types of predictive analytics and models to insert into our marketing promotions and campaigns to be more intelligent about, you know, what content and what messages we service to our customers. But on the flip side with Castora, it's been extremely helpful for us to the books. You know, with us, we're actually a team of two running CRM here. So we're obviously very lean. And Castora, out of the box, it has the ability to provide analytics around things um, like customer lifetime value that we discussed and predicted lifetime value. And then the big thing for us here is what are customers' recipient preferences, and then also flower preferences, and then, you know, do people like to buy bases when they buy flowers? That's a big 
space for us. And I think the big benefit that the store has provided is the ability to get access to these types of analytics to inject into our promotional strategy. Whereas with Salesforce and, you know, I'm not trying to call Salesforce specifically, but with some of the traditional marketing automation platforms and ESPs, they may not necessarily have that capability built into their initial offering. And that's kind of one thing that differentiates um, you know, Castora from a traditional ESP and why I think a lot of companies are looking at using Castora as a complement to having an ESP or marketing automation platform in place right now. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, it, it's it's really about um, sharpening the tool and the stack and, and the tools that you use either add friction resistance to your ability to communicate well directly with your customer base or they enhance it. And I think we've, co- we've come into an era where the ability to reduce friction is so critical and it's not just about design it's about being able to have that real-time conversation that contextual intelligence and it just takes a lot of data it takes a lot of analysis to get there and to be smart and i think that's why we get this next generation of tools definitely and it's you know it's going to be really interesting where this space goes in the next few years because i'm seeing with some of the newer esps and marketing automation platforms that are coming to market now they're they're trying to position themselves as kind of an all-in-one platform where you know claiming to provide obviously email marketing, marketing automation, tracking of on-site behaviors and activities. But then some are also kind of trying to come to the market to say that they can also provide predictive analytics and customer analytics. And so it's yeah, it's gonna be interesting where things go if the trend is towards consolidation and having everything kind of housed in one platform or continuing to have multiple vendors that maybe specialize in pieces of the tech stack. So yeah, I think it's gonna be interesting where, where things go in the future. I agree. So let's say that I want to start a, a some kind of company that allows me to communicate more strongly in a D2C fashion, and maybe I'm going to sell something online. What would you recommend you know, from a marketing and a CRM perspective that I do first, maybe first, second, and third, if you have tips for the listeners? Yeah, well, I think sticking with the, the theme of how to use um, customer lifetime value to inform strategy. I think obviously number one is figuring out a growth strategy to create awareness, lead generation, and you know customers to get your product off the ground. But I think as a next step is starting to really dive in and understand what are the key trends and behaviors and makeup of who you would identify as your best customers. It's something that we did here at the Books with the help of Castora actually a big key exercise that we did is we dove in and looked at um, the top 25% of our customers and looked at, you know, like, what are the trends? So mostly for us, it was mostly from a transactional perspective, but, you know, you can look at it a variety of things, you know, referrals, are they signing up for subscriptions? Are they viewing certain content on your site? But, you know, with us, we mostly focused on, on transactional behaviors and kind of what we found, and it, it, it may seem really straightforward, is the people that were best customers were ones that, not only bought for Mother's Day and Valentine's Day, but they they bought for a variety of other holidays outside of those two peak seasons. And then the other big differentiator too was they purchased for multiple recipients. So I think with the average customers that we have here, they'll buy for 
mostly for their significant other or maybe just for their mother, but we found with the best customers that they bought for multiple recipients. And so after we kind of got that major insight, we started to look at our lifecycle marketing strategy. And then the thing that we looked in, and we're still evolving this now, is how can we incentivize and align campaigns and creative treatments to incentivize these types of behaviors that distinguish the best customers versus the average customers that you have. And so some of the big, big things that we put in market were drip series for uh, customers once we sense that they might be likely to churn. And we'll surface content around um, birthdays, anniversaries, and then a big thing for us now is home decor. Um, so the, the concept of getting people to buy flowers for their homes, for parties, and things of that nature. And so it's kind of a recent insight that we, you know, we're trying to figure out how to uh, incentivize and promote that more because it seems like that's kind of a changing behavior with our customer base right now. So, yeah, I, and I think, you know, that was an example of what we're doing at the Books. But even um, when I was at Beachbody or when I was at Allergan in facial aesthetics, we, we tried to do that comparison to look at what behaviors and transactional history trends differentiate your best versus lower customers and then putting in tactics to try to incentivize those lower tiered customers to get to become your best customers. Now, when you say lower tiered, are you talking about the lower part of the top customers, the way Castora cuts it, like the top 25% of transactions? Or are you talking about the lower tier as in of all customers? Yeah, that's actually a good point is I was referring to the lower tier of all customers. But having said that, there's going to be that, you know, in all organizations, a subset of those lower tier customers where after a certain period of time, it's not going to be cost effective to try to market to them. Because you're inevitably going to have, you know, a, a one and done type customer, you know, somebody who's going to buy from you just for a special occasion or a certain instance. And then, you know, maybe they're not loyal. They see a competitor or something of that nature. But yeah, I'm kind of referring to, you know, outside of those kind of lost customers, it's within that 26 to say 85% of your customer base um, where there is an opportunity to kind of move them into the higher tiers and that customer classification. Got it. Let me summarize a little bit because I think uh, what you've just said about the the process here is really interesting. First, you basically have to have a growth strategy to get your product off the ground. And once you have that in place, then the next key essential is looking at the key trends and behaviors of your best customers. That means you have to run the CLV model in order to understand the spread of your customers. So traditionally, we say you need about two years of data for that, but I I suppose it could depend on the transaction frequency that you're working with. But let's just say that you've been in business for two years, you've got a nice bank of customers, you run the CLV models, and you can see then the best customers and start to mine. So here's step two, start to mine that for the trends and behaviors. And this is where you were saying that you found customers weren't just buying for your key occasions of Mother's Day and Valentine's Day, but for other occasions and also for multiple recipients. Then in the third part, you start moving it into the life cycle 
marketing strategy where you start testing different incentives and creatives and drips and start maybe listening a little closer to the customer base because you can segment what your high value customers want from what your lower value customers want, but you can still, in step four, then activate different lower tiers of customers and hopefully drive them to become better customers overall. Did I capture that correctly? That was an excellent summary and probably better than how I said it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that. (laughs) Oh, Um, wonderful. Yeah, no, no, you hit on all the key points. And, you know, probably up front, I should have mentioned that just numbers wise, you're 26 to 85% of your customers, there's typically going to be just more opportunity from a financial perspective. And so that's why that's been a big focus of ours. Um, obviously, you know, you want to put tactics in place to maintain your top tier customers to make them even more loyal and, you know, more of brand advocates. But that's why the bigger financial opportunity is kind of the lower tier, just from a pure volume basis. And so that's why I think that's a, a big focus of, um, you know, how we've attacked our engagement strategy and given, you know, where we are in our life cycle right now. Yeah, which is exactly right. That's what uh, we oftentimes put up this pyramid to say, okay, here's your top, your middle and your low value customers. Where would you start? And it's always amazing to me where people come in and they don't always think about it's the middle. Like marketing is designed to leverage the middle. It's it's you're not necessarily trying to to beat up people who love you already, nor are you trying to pester people who have said, yeah, I just am not that interested. You're really looking for that middle base. So I, I love the quantification of the 26 to 85%. I think that's a that's an excellent way to think about it. Now, if people would like to get in touch with you, Phil, how can they reach you? Yeah, um, you know, probably the best way is my LinkedIn profile. So my name is Phil Irvine. You know, I work at the Books Company. So easy to search for my, uh, I think um, I'm looking at the, the URL right now. It's linkedin.com slash IN slash P Irvine. So uh, yeah, I mean, Feel free, definitely drop me a message, connect with me. I love to, you know, network and talk about things in this space. So more than happy to, you know, help people out or if people just want to share ideas or even tell me if they think I should be doing things better here. I mean, I'm, I'm open to all types of ideas. So Fantastic. And we will link to your profile as well in the show notes when we post it. As always, everything we discuss is at ambitiondata.com slash podcast. Phil, I want to thank you so much for sharing your great ideas and joining us today. It's really been a pleasure. Definitely, definitely love this. And uh, thank you for the opportunity. Really, really appreciate it. Remember everyone, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It's not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is your host, Allison Hartzell, and I have two gifts for you. First, I've written a guide for the customer-centric CMO, which contains some of the best ideas from this podcast, and you can receive it right now. Simply text Ambition Data, one word, to 31996. And after you get that white paper, you'll have the option for the second gift, which is to receive the signal. Once a month, I put together a list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, 
cool statistics or people and companies I think are making amazing progress as they build customer equity. I hope you enjoy the CMO guide and the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.